Tonight on the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A Show, is it part one? Is it the only part of the week? I don't know. I can only commit right now to this being part one, and time permitting, maybe we'll get to a part two later in the week. But nonetheless, here we are, ready to go. Your Q&A, the focus of my evening. Thanks, y'all. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a little thing that we do each week. It's conversational. It's loosely formatted. And it's become like family. Hey, guess what? We are just a couple episodes away from number 1,000 for this silly podcast. Asked informally through the show here for folks who might have listened to every episode so far to raise their hands, drop me a note. So far, I've got three people, which is pretty amazing. And I wonder if there's more of you. And I'm praying for those three uh, that's crazy. I haven't listened to all 1,000 episodes. So uh, anyways, going to have a fun, fun celebratory episode 1,000. Favorite stories told by many, many, many of our friends. The list continues to grow. I'm trying to pull it up right here so I can speak with a minor bit of knowledge. Let's see. So far, we have Alan McNish, Bobby Rahal, Bruce Canepa, Chris Neifel, Danny Sullivan, David Brabham, Ed Justice, Jim Busby, Justin Bell, Lynn St. James, Mark Blundell, Ryan Eversley, Tony Dow, and Wayne Taylor. I have Catherine Legg on the list to call, Ryan Dial, dear pal Harley Cluxton, uh, certain William Theodore Ribs, and we're going to add in a few more. And I'm just telling you, the stories they have been telling, crazy, funny, poignant, all over the place. It's been a blast to collect them. So going to try and have that ready for next Monday. It's basically our Christmas holiday feature. going to mention here because it just makes me super happy and proud, and I need to thank you all for this, that our pals at Cooper Tires, they're back. They're coming back again. This will be year number four, I believe, unless I'm getting it wrong. But this will be a beautiful, they were our first, first partner and will remain one of our primary partners and had a delightful conversation today with Mr. Justice and can't wait to have some new graphics and logos tuned up for next year. Our pal Roger Warwick, who does those for me, already have him on a mission with one. Need to get him started on a second. So anyways, lots of things trending upward. Final thing to throw at you here. Boy, you want to talk about pride in one's spouse. My wife had a pretty amazing, I guess, 24-hour span. Monday and Tuesday had really hardcore physical therapy where she just knocked it out of the proverbial park and then had a quick hospital-related, chemo-related visit, then back home, and then nearly an all-day chemo session on Tuesday. And she was just, wow, just awesome. So it's a lot to deal with, y'all. I am so fortunate to have never had to go through chemotherapy, but I can tell you as someone who's been there with her for the, uh, I guess, the whole ride and also every chemo session, all the physical therapy, all the everything she goes through, uh, boy, just such immense pride in your looking at your spouse, your loved one, this woman that I spend my life with, attacking 
something, to defeat it, and continuing to. And as I've said many times, this is an endurance race. It's not a uh, it's not a sprint race. This is certainly a long, multi-year process. And yet, instead of tiring out, losing faith, her spirit declining, she is fighting harder, and also just bringing so much character and love and warmth and whatnot. So, yeah, uh, I'd probably just spend the whole show talking about her if I could, but. The reason you all send in questions and the reason that we do this each week is to have fun in our little IndyCar community. So I'm going to kick off a little music bed here. That's the official signal that it is time to get rolling with everything that you sent in. Our good pal Tim Falkowitz, the man who puts the questions together for me each week and yet again did a super fine job. Uh, nothing is backwards, so that's really nice. Uh, all the questions are in line, so... I'm, I'm feeling pretty pretty stoked with what our boy <laughs> Falkowitz was able to do. So let's get rolling with the very, very first one. Well, who'd have thunk it? Daniel Summersgill and our man Tim happened to lead off the show. Daniel says, great to hear Juan Pablo Montoya is returning to the Indy 500 with Aero McLaren SP, but how difficult is it to adjust back to driving an Indy car after spending several years away driving sports cars? Or is it just a case of hashtag it is what it is, which is the official hashtag of JPM. Uh, let's see. Let's go with this first, and then we'll add some of the additional color brought in by Tim. This is one of the world's greatest race car drivers of this era, Daniel. So also someone who has made a name and reputation as one of the great universal talents. Throw him in anything and in a very short amount of time, he will figure it out and take it to the front if it's capable of going to the front. So, yeah, will JPM want a session or two during ROP and refresher to get his head wrapped around the car with the aero screen and such? Sure, yeah, of course. But <laughs> with the amount of practice that's available and the amount of running he will be able to do prior to qualifying, prior to the race, just not even a thought or consideration. So if this were any other driver who'd been out for many, many years, yeah, you might question whether they could get up to speed or whether they'd be a little bit of a liability. There's just nothing along those lines that I can think of, Daniel, for our man JPM. Throw in here, I found hilarious. A lot of folks reacted with age. 45, Jesus. I mean, that's the best they can get past his prime, so on and so forth. And it's like, okay, cool. Doubt the guy. <laughs> there are a lot of older drivers who might come back after however many years, and you go, yeah, I don't know. Uh, keep in mind, this guy is the 2019 IMSA DPI champion, right? So won a championship here recently is someone who climbs in any and everything and is one of the all-time greats. So for those who think, ah, old, slow, age, and whatnot, uh, would you be surprised to see JPM as the fastest among the three drivers uh, at Aero McLaren SP in the month of May, provided we have Indy in May? Would that be a total shock? No, not at all. I don't think he's going to be much faster than Pato. Uh, or Felix, 
in these cars these days, a driver is as good as his team at Indy. So I wouldn't say he's going to go run off and hide, but I have no doubt this guy is going to be pure electricity and cannot wait to see him get plugged in there and what he produces for them. Uh, Tim says, hey, great to see Montoya coming back. He says, I know he said in the past he will pick and choose and only go for races that he can win rather than doing it just to be there. Is this a vote of confidence uh, in the team for 2021 from JPM? And you think they'll be ready to deliver him a winning car now that they've had a year of experience? Well, the fun part here, Tim, is he will be working with the great, (laughs) the great Craig Hampson as his race engineer. So two people... Hall of Famers, amazing, just amazing. So the thought of those two together, that is, wow. That's pretty pretty freaking amazing. Were the Aero McLaren SP cars rockets at Indy last year and super dominant? Eh, not so much. So that would certainly be an area we know that they're going to work on during the offseason. Confidence, yeah. We know that uh, Juan's relationship with McLaren is one that was pretty darn easy to help make this happen. But this is just a guy who, if we're talking a lineup, and I spoke with Zach Brown about this, I don't know, five days ago, six days ago. Whew, just, (laughs) if we're talking Award, Rosenquist, and Montoya as a lineup, I don't know if the... Sam Schmidt Motorsports team, which is now known as Air McLaren SP, I don't know if they've ever had a stronger depth chart. So I think this is a huge vote of confidence coming their way from him. Would also say that provided they get themselves to a place where their cars can run at the front, this is going to be a dark horse winner of the 500, whether it's Montoya or one of his two teammates. I think this team is going to be ready for more, and what a guy to help lend knowledge, lend approach, uh, coach these young guys, right? If you think about how many Indy 500s Pato has uh, under his belt and how many Felix has, I mean, Montoya's won two. Uh, they have a combined three Indy 500s to their credit. So I think that's going to be a pretty cool thing too, Tim, and we'll look forward to hearing from Pato and Felix about, hey, What's uh what's good old grandpa here telling you that you didn't know before? Uh, what mindsets and approaches are you following that he might be bringing in that you didn't have before? Not that Fernando Alonso last season wouldn't have brought something to the team at Indy, but this is just a little bit different. Well, this is someone who's, in terms of oval experience, wow. <laughs> if you ever want to entertain yourself, go back and watch uh, good old YouTubes and cart races of JPM on ovals. It's <laughs> some of it looks almost fake because you can't believe the guy's actually doing it and pulling the stuff off. Uh, let's go to Hire Lee and David Cubine. Hire, you said in light of what we saw in the Bahrain Formula One race, should we have a medical car like an F1? Uh, I know we have Marshall posts um, that have an AMR crew ready on standby. But I find the idea of a car that follows the field on the first lap better, in all likelihood you couldn't have them on short ovals due to the distance uh, that the car has to keep from the field. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the easiest answer to all this hire, which is 
is it a everywhere or nowhere scenario? I'm not totally sure because if you say, Hey, we're going to do this on the road and street courses. Great. Uh, but we're not going to do it on the big ovals. I, I don't know. I wonder if there's going to be questions as to whether things are truly as, uh, well thought out as they should be. And if indeed there's a giant crash on the first lap where a safety car trailing the field may have made a difference and it wasn't done. I, I fear lawyers and lawsuits and sometimes it's easier to just not do the thing. So since IndyCar is very different, goes to five different types of tracks, some of them with laps that take 20 seconds or less. I think we might just have the existing situation with multiple AMR safety trucks and personnel on standby at uh, key places around each circuit. David Cubine, you said resubmission as requested from last week's show. Uh, the discussion about safety structures at various tr- racetracks sparked a question I've always had about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Why isn't there a tall safety fence along the pit wall? So as you discussed, uh, there are usually fewer safety structures along straightaways because there are far fewer accidents there. But it, all it would take is an IndyCar climbing over another's wheel to launch a car over the wall into pit lane. I only seem to recall cars very occasionally going uh, into the right side fencing during the 105 years of Indy 500 accidents. Uh, is it less possible for an airborne car to go left towards pit lane? Or is it just luck all these years that that hasn't happened? It'd be luck. It'd be 100% luck, David. And I do recall, and I apologize that I don't remember the exact year, but after, what was it? Was it 2014, 2015, when Sebastian Saavedra was on pole for Ganassi at uh, the IMS road course, and there were the stalls and the huge crashes, and what I think it was the mayor was there waving the uh, the flag or whatever, and got hit by debris, and there was a big shower of stuff uh, that came onto pit lane if i remember correctly the year after and maybe for more than a couple of years there was some form of of non-permanent uh barrier put up i think i'm not saying it was plexiglass but it's some sort of plastic like shield uh along i don't know if i don't think it was the whole length of the front straight the car's going backwards obviously for the road course but there was something done in reaction to it gotta admit that this is one of those things where in time, probably not too much time, I'd be very surprised if there isn't something erected to prevent that because you have cars coming out of turn four at 200 plus miles an hour. They do 200 plus all the way down the straight and hang a really hard left. And so the whole time there, whether it is cars climbing over one another a tire failure and who knows what happens that does something bizarre to rotate and flip the car, make it go airborne, whatever it might be. There is certainly always a chance of a projectile coming over the wall and getting into pit lane. Is this something I could see happening? Yes. Now I don't mean, well, it'll happen. Of course it's happened before without a doubt. But I'm not talking about on a whole car, but who knows, some sort of part or piece coming over the wall. Will a vehicle go over the wall at some point? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, just the law of averages say it's going to happen at some point in time. It may have happened, and I'm just forgetting it already. But 
Do I think IndyCar will look to put up some sort of something there to discourage that from happening? Very possibly. What would it be? I don't know. If we're talking about some sort of, you know, Lexan plastic type vertical, whatever, is that going to stop in 1800 pound car? Eh, probably not. So I'm not sure what the device would be, David, but this seems like something that if a car were to go over the wall or a significant amount of a car to go over the wall and hit someone or something, and there was a serious injury, if not a grave outcome, this just seems like one of those things we're going to come back to yet again and go, why didn't we think about doing something beforehand? This to me at least, falls directly into this category, uh, just as you've mentioned it. Let's go to our pal John Callahan and also Darren Dubois on similar topics. John says, what are the chances that Long Beach could and would move its date to September or October, like St. Pete, to preserve the 2021 race? Additionally, could Coda fill that April date? Well, John, I would recommend reading the story that I posted last week on this on racer.com. Uh, we know that September 25, 26 is the alternate date that's been floated to IMSA and IndyCar uh, for the, the paused Long Beach Grand Prix instead of a canceled Long Beach Grand Prix. There was a rumor uh, earlier this week that an announcement that it's just going to be done and we're just going to move it there no matter what was imminent and have since been told that more likely a decision on whether it will stay mid-April or go to September would be a late January decision. So could that change? Could a decision happen sooner? Of course, but at least for what we've heard uh, within the last, say, 24 hours, John, uh, they're going to hold off until we get into the new year and almost into February, which makes sense to me, get a feel for where we're at with COVID and defeating it and vaccine and whatnot before calling a big change. Uh, Darren, you mentioned besides Long Beach, are there other events on the front half of the calendar that are exploring alternative alternative dates for hopefully fewer crowd restrictions? As I mentioned last week, you can safely assume that every single event on the calendar has looked at and tried to map out alternate dates. So yes, without a doubt. So whether it is St. Pete, Barber, etc., Laguna Seca, you can absolutely expect that all of them have said, all right, what if, what if COVID is still locking us down, preventing fans? And so, yes, you can absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right. And there is no question that there are a lot of folks trying to figure out what to do if they can't hold their race at the, uh, first calendar date it was listed on and i say first because i'm staring at the 2021 schedule taped to my wall and i've yet to put a number one on it but i I should because i know there's going to be a number two and last weekend while cleaning up the office i did actually pull down and throw away the uh what five six seven from 2020 and threw those suckers away so yeah uh, let's see, where do we go next? Brian Burrell and Sean Lee. Sean, your question in particular. Thank you for asking it. Uh, we're going to go with Brian's first as MP. Guess I'd like to learn more about all the diversity initiatives 
uh, and I guess their funding structures. It says you have the W Series that I believe is under the F1 banner, but here in the U.S., open wheel racing, I can think of three currently. You have the Race for Equality and Change, IndyCar. Uh, you mentioned Pippa Mann is involved with Shift Up Now, and I believe Lynn St. James started the Women in Winter Circle. Uh, why not combine all of these resources? It appears they're all pulling from U.S. talent to diversify racing, so why not try and create one focus group with shared resources? Well, it's a great question, Brian. Keep in mind, though, that we have three separate businesses. And while it's always easy from the outside to say, well, hey, why don't you two or three just all decide to become one entity? Ultimately, Roger Penske founded and owns uh, the Race for Equality and Change, founded and owns the Force Indy USF 2000 team. That's his business, his people running it, and things that go on to his balance sheet. Would there be an interest in possibly buying or partnering with Shift Up now? Possibly. Again, I don't know. But we have a situation where certainly to date, the race for equality and change has not said much or done much related to advancing women in the sport, whereas Shift Up now certainly it's 100% focused on that. Uh, you mentioned Lynn St. James. She's had a council for decades and has tried to, well, she has made significant impacts, but she is also someone who, I mean, she's been in this space longer than just about anybody in motor racing. And she has, at times, had to shut off the foundation, or at least the prize-giving side of it, and uh, was proud to have been asked by Lynn years ago to be part of the selection committee for the young women looking for grants to continue their racing careers. There's just not enough people donating. And it's been a little while since money has actually been in the bank to help young women move up, move on, and grow through Lynn's foundation. So what I would hope, and I'm ignorant on the answer to this, Brian, but I'm hoping to learn a little bit more, is how much has the Race for Equality and Change done outreach? I know that speaking with Bud Denker, Roger Penske's number two, who's really been uh, the person helping to turn the race for equality and change from a concept into something real. I know that I've shared a number of phone numbers with Bud at his request for some of the women that you've mentioned. Um, I had a uh, woman racer today ask for Bud's number to reach out to speak with him. I don't know why. Didn't ask. That wasn't part of the conversation. But uh, so I know that Lynn wants to connect with him. I don't know if Pippa has connected with Bud and that team there. Overarching answer is I would love to see them all try and work together in a capacity to help one another. I just don't know if they are all aligned with the same goal, focus, and vision. Uh, Pippa had some extremely critical uh things to say about the race for equality and change. Uh, I called her about one of the comments as well, which was just mind boggling. Um, so I don't know. 
uh, is their desire and commonality and focus and desire and output and all these things there or not? I don't know. So I'm hoping to gain more insight about this, Brian, and to see where things might go in terms of making the race for equality and change something that I would hope isn't just championing African-American inclusion and diversity, but also women racers, whether it's driving, engineering, managing, mechanicking. Is that a word, by the way? I don't know. I don't really use it except for as a jokey throwaway line, but is mechanicking a word? I'm sure someone will tell me. But that's the thing that I would love to see most, Brian. Keep in mind, <laughs> no one asks. Uh, no one gives a fart. And it's just me sharing my two cents, maybe one cent. Uh, Sean Lee says, uh, second time submitting this, says, with IndyCar's diversity initiative, are there provisions being made towards sexual identity and orientation along with race and gender? Awesome question, Sean. I do not know. I can only tell you what I have spoken on in the discussions that have been had. And so I'm trying to delineate in my answer here because I can only speak to what I've read that has come out of the RENC and the admittedly numerous, numerous conversations that have been held uh, with Bud and Roger to some degree, but mostly Bud on the topic. Not once have I read anything or heard anything about RENC having a goal of including uh, whatever form of LBGTQ plus as part of its mission, mission statement, core effects. I simply don't know, but I can also tell you I've never heard it mentioned once, which leads me to believe, at least so far, it might not be a thing. But it is a great thing for me to ask about next time I communicate with uh, the RE and C. Speaking freely here, this is the one area in motor racing, and it's not specific to IndyCar. It's something that I have seen and experienced and receive in every paddock that I go to. Sexuality, homosexuality, transgender, anything that isn't straight, often the subject of a lot of jokes, not funny jokes, but mean, uncomfortable, cruel, divisive, derisive things. And that's not a new thing. I've been very fortunate to work with very good folks, share houses with just being from the Bay Area, living in San Francisco for a long time. For those who don't know, maybe you don't care, uh, sexual orientation, eh, it's not really a thing, right? It's not really a big thing. Uh, it's not a something to separate one another. So realize that not most places 
don't live and function that way. At least here, like it's just normal. And so having the good fortune of working with, uh, on racing teams with a mechanic who identifies as this or that, uh, who is fully out, who is just whatever, just normal, not, not a thing. I mentioned that for one reason, Sean, boy, you want to find out how quickly it's a thing, (laughs) leave the little bubble here. And so that's not speaking ill of anyone or anywhere else, just saying that of the many life lessons that came to a young me, and I'm sure many others who worked in racing and whatever other thing, um, who did a lot of it in the Bay area, uh, before branching out and doing it throughout the country, throughout the world, whatever, you just get a feel for the things where you go, Oh, well that doesn't really seem to fly here or there or wherever. This is a topic where I will be so proud of IndyCar and the race for equality and change. If they answer in the affirmative that yes, when we talk equality and change, we want to be all inclusive. We don't want to say no, you particular people over here, who believe this, who are whatever, whether it's sexual, religious, political, whatever. I'm just saying, if you're going to do this, you do it fully, not kind of divide it up and go, eh, we're just going to focus on African-American people or pick whatever ethnic background, just this narrow band. If you're going to, quote, race for equality and change, uh don't subdivide and prioritize one or one thing as more important than the other. That's my thoughts. At least I am positive. There are many who absolutely disagree, but can't wait to find out, Sean. Thank you for asking. It had been in the back of my head of something to pose and I'm not totally sure why I haven't yet, but uh, it's now it's been highlighted on the page, which means in theory, I won't forget it. Uh, let's go to AJ Pritch. Hey, AJ. He says, long time listener, first time questioner. My favorites. I love that. Seems like every episode of late, we've had at least one listener reach out for the first time and pose a question. So thank you, AJ says with IndyCar being a spec series, uh, why does it seem so difficult for teams like say AJ Foyt racing to be competitive? Is it engineering? Is it funding? Is it A.J. Foyt being stubborn as a bull? couple things here, A.J., for sure. It's a people sport. Let's go ahead and submit that as the dumbest, most obvious thing I've ever said. The cars might be identical or very close to identical. That's why the people tend to be the ones that make the big, big difference. So I think of quite often... I know this is maybe an old-timey example, but I do remember the soapbox derby cars. These little pieces of wood that you would try and shape into some aerodynamic form, and you'd put the four wheels on them. They they had a minimum weight for all of them, and you'd basically let them go. They'd run down uh, side by side by side by side, and the ones that get to the finish line first win. And you go, well... But in theory, these things should be basically a dead heat every time. You find out, well, actually, no. So 
This kid and his or her father or mother spent a lot of time trying to reduce friction between the wheel and the little uh, uh, toothpick or whatever it is holding the wheels on. And so they've tried to come up with super low friction there to allow the wheels to spin easier and therefore build more momentum. Or they have, while the minimum weight is the identical across all, they have shifted the weight forward uh, so there's better traction right out of the gate on that front axle or, or, or they've shaped it in a certain way where maybe there's a tiny aerodynamic advantage at, you know, nine miles an hour going down this board. But the point being here is everyone's starting with the same thing. Everyone has more or less identical, uh, outputs of what they're going to put and compete with. And yet there are some that always win and seemingly some that always lose it's the people and you think about the people you go wait a minute aren't there some great people at small teams that never win absolutely what's one of the dynamics that can make a team a more consistent winner people at that team that can find money right that's a competitive aspect that we don't speak about enough hey uh, the people at name the variety of big teams that win a lot. Are they usually the ones that have cars with no sponsors on them? <laughs> and they're, you know, eating, uh, uh, dollar sandwiches from the local, uh, gas station, or are they living a pretty nice high functioning lifestyle with all kinds of great stuff and amenities because they have more money coming in, therefore can't afford that. Um, that's where you tend to see these differences. And so that's why when you talk about teams and quality, you say, hey, at a Penske, Ganassi, Andretti, and so on, they have the best race engineers, the best assistant engineers, the best chief mechanics, and gearbox person, and front-end mechanic, and rear-end mechanic, and all kinds of things. Pit stops, right? They've got the best over-the-wall crew. Then you look at the drivers and go, whoa, (laughs) That person's amazing. Uh, of course, you combine that driver, that engineer, the assistant, the crew chief, the pit stops, and the refueler is just always plugged in before the car comes to a stop. It's all these little things driven by people having to work with the same exact tool. Realize, of course, there are a couple areas on the cars that are free for development, like the, uh, the shock absorbers. But for the most part, AJ, we're looking at people and the better people cost more money. That's why the better people tend not to be at the smaller team. Sometimes you do, right? Craig Hampson, who I mentioned, who's technical director at Air McLaren SP. Where did he come from? Dale Coin Racing, right? There are fewer teams with less money spent per year than Dale Coin. It's a miracle. They perform as well as they do each year. What's one of the things that had them so competitive in winning races every year for quite a while, whether it was Craig with Sebastian Bourdais. Uh, we now have Olivier Boisson, who's, again, just so highly regarded. Eric Cowden, uh, go back, and there's more. Michael Cannon, who was there. You look at the engineering talent, and you go, wow. <laughs> Even though they don't have as much money and can't do as many smart ideas, R&D things and such to keep up with the other teams. Wow, this super, super skilled 
engineer can help tip the competitive balance in a, a very favorable direction that money alone uh, would not, you know, money alone they don't have. So what do they do? They offset it with crazy talent in the places that they can afford and those who might want to come to work with them. So coming back to your example of a Foyt team, they have many talented people there. So that's not, you know, it's not as if they have all the bad ones and the big teams have all the good ones. And that's why it's not the case, but are there some folks who you would say, boy, this one might be a little better in this area or that. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. It's not being critical of, of the Foyt team. Their annual results speak to the fact in recent years, they've made some very poor engineering decisions. They have made some very poor managerial decisions. They've hired some drivers who didn't work out and we knew were never going to work out. But for whatever reason, maybe they brought some money that the team needed or et cetera. Deal was done. And so again, coming back to the person that finds money, well, who is doing that on your team and how good are they and what competitive budget place do they put you in? All things to think about, AJ, in terms of why one team is beating another, one team is losing to another. Sometimes there's just folks that might be a little bit better in a lot of the key roles. Last thing I'll mention, and I know a lot of this is more touchy-feely esoteric than, aha, the brake caliper hat on the so-and-so cars are just perfect and that's why they have faster pit stops sometimes it comes down to hey you know what we've got a great budget and we feel like we've got some really good drivers and we've got some really good engineers and we've got some good mechanics they don't get the most out of each other though maybe they aren't working in a harmonious fashion maybe there's a little bit of division Maybe the, you know what, screw that guy. (laughs) You know what, that person is such a jerk and is so demanding all the time and is just never, all they have is criticism for me and what I do. And yeah, I could stay up another two hours doing this, doing that, looking through this, planning that. I'm going to the bar. I would, (laughs) well, just tell you, that is not, a uncommon scenario uh, with the teams that you find are not consistently good. There's usually some form of disconnect where as a unit, they don't gel. They don't come together. Look at whatever your favorite stick and ball sport might be. And you're going to have the same exact dynamic uh, on the court, the field, the pitch, the wherever you go. Well, how, (laughs) how, well, look, They don't hold each other accountable. There's jealousy. There's whatever it might be. There's a lot of ways that putting humans in a pressure-packed scenario and then asking them to go do this for a year, travel all over the place, not get enough sleep, uh, heat and rain and just, you know, all kinds of things. Hey, I don't feel like I'm getting paid enough. Hey, I've been here for five years and this old person who's been here forever, man, they, they just lost their edge but they're the favorite of the team manager or the owner or the whatever. So they're just going to stick around. I end up having to do half their work and I'm never going to get promoted while they're here, but they're never going to get rid of that guy. Again, these are the things, (laughs) these are the things where you go. Yep. 
That's why they're rolling out a car that isn't five seconds off of the leading one. It's two tenths, three tenths, maybe four. You go, all right. Um, not everybody comes together to get the best out of each other. And that's why not less than half of the teams each year really stand out. Uh, where are we going next? We, and by the way, thanks again, AJ. And for everyone else, don't hesitate to send in your first time, long time questions. I'm going to go to Jay, Jay Gertler and also Daniel Espinoza. JJ says your prudosity. Look at that. I think that was a album from the police. A couple episodes ago, you mentioned that the annual budget to run the Cooper tires, us F 2000 series was about $350,000. So I know where to put my advertising money. What would that amount buy with a mid-pack IndyCar team? An end plate for a couple races, a secondary sponsorship for one race. Would that even cover AJ Foyt's tab at Charlie Brown's restaurant? <laughs> Let's see. Well, again, this is a depends who you speak with JJ. So for a smaller team that doesn't have a lot of stickers on their car, uh, this uh, 350 grand might get you something. You want to know the trick? Granted, it might not fit your sponsorship needs, but the races, the Torontos, for example, there's always some sort of deal for, it feels like half the field. I know it's not, but there's a lot of sponsors that pop up for Toronto where you go, oh, that's not their primary. Huh? Why? Well, that sponsor doesn't sell whatever it is in Canada, or maybe they do, but it's just not the subject of a big marketing budget out of the u.s division maybe it'd be the canadian division and maybe the canadian division eh, not so interested in forking out for the home race so you'd look at something like that uh, if you wanted to get the most out of that 350 grand because there are a lot of teams scrambling to find something um what would that get you i mean frankly Depending upon the team, that might get you a side pod. If it's a team that's genuinely hurting for cash, that might get you a side pod. If not a side pod, something pretty big on the engine cover, uh, although the engine cover is no longer all that big. But you might be surprised what three hundred and fifty grand would get you. Uh, if we're looking at a little bit bigger, that might get you co-primary for an Indy 500 program. Not a bigger one, but that 350K, yeah, I mean, depending depending on the team, the numbers that I hear, granted, for some teams, they ask for more than a million dollars to run a car for somebody at the Indy 500. I, I so want to be those teams. <laughs> I don't know where they get that number, but boy, it's fantastic. Uh, talk to a lot of drivers who are looking around, and you know they'll hear 500, 650, uh, 750 for a seat, so... I'd say you, you could get half a car uh, for probably something in the bottom half of the field for your 350K. So, yeah. Um, can I interest you in sponsoring a podcast, though, for 350K? And it wouldn't just be for one episode. Uh, we might even do half a season. Um, Daniel, he asks, this is more of an Indie Lights question. What is a rough cost to run a competitive season in lights? Would it be one to two million a car? Uh, two million would be worrying, Daniel. Numbers that I hear float between eh, eight fifty to nine hundred to one point two or so. I'll 
freely admit I haven't asked about the upcoming season. I haven't checked in with anybody to see yet if it's uh, if there's any significant change to that. But yeah, be round about a million dollars is something that would make a lot of teams happy to try and run a young driver. All right, we are going to what are we going to do here? We're going to mash the throttle. Why? Because we need to do some throttle mashing. In reality, I need to get some dinner going for Mrs. Pruitt here soon. So let's rock and roll. And uh, we're going to use, I think this is going to be the first official use of the Marshall Pruitt podcast, push to pass. Andy Bauer says, hi, Marshall, in a recent polished turd of an article on racer.com about Takuma Sato's 2020 Indy 500 winning chassis being retired. RLL, Ray Hall Adam and Lanigan Racing, mentioned they swapped out the spool for a differential so the car could be driven on the Motegi Road circuit. Can you explain the difference between the two and how a differential actually works? Uh, and are the differentials and spools spec? It says, continued prayers for you and your wife. It says, I love hearing about all the ass-kicking uh, she's doing in her recovery. Thanks, Andy. Uh, I will give you a super low-grade differential versus spool explanation here. Otherwise, we're going to burn 15 minutes. So a spool is what locks the left axle and the right axle together. So the rear of the car is driven together. So step on the throttle, both tires spin equally and or just acceleration wise, they are locked together. So the spool is device inside of the transmission that genuinely connects the left to the right so when power is put to the rear of the car it accelerates both wheels both tires equally differential does kind of sort of what the name implies it differentiates between the loaded tire and unloaded tire so that's why on a road and street course, teams will use a differential. So going through corners, you are going to have the outside tire that is loaded more. The inside tends to be loaded less. Indeed, the demands for acceleration going around this sharper corner, if we were to use a spool, the car would be almost impossible to drive because if you think about the arc, of the left rear tire versus the right rear going around a corner, they're actually traveling different distances. So these are things that you can hit the YouTubes and they'll give you a much deeper explanation on this. But on a road and street course, you want a differential that helps based on the load being received by either side of the differential to apply more power to the loaded wheel than the unloaded wheel. Otherwise, you would, again, not be handling in any kind of really happy functional way and applying power to the unloaded side where it's not doing much. It's really not helping you to accelerate. For big super speedway, you are looking at, while there are certainly corners and they have radiuses, they tend not to be crazy sharp like you would find on a road course. So in this instance, a spool, which connects both axles and connects the rear of the car, um, basically helps you to perform uh, and have a pretty simple and straightforward 
unified, consistent power application to the back of the car. So that's the reason why our friends at the Honda Museum said, hey, uh, great, thank you, we want the car. I believe someone might have asked, and I don't see it here, so maybe it's below the cut line. Um, how does that happen? Do they pay for it? What, what happens? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a complete indie car is worth 700000 maybe, and I'm not talking the engine, obviously, but uh, it's an expensive asset. This is certainly not something that would be given away. This would be bought. So as for how a team works that deal, whether it is true cash exchange, is it a name the number $700,000 discount from their engine lease? Can't tell you the mechanism there, but yes, for sure, this is paid for and all transportation and everything else, it is all upon whichever manufacturer would want that car. Um, why would they throw a differential in it? Well, although Motegi was used as a oval for the majority of its time as an IndyCar circuit, it really doesn't get used as that anymore. I think someone else asked, is the track back up and functional since um, whichever last earthquakes that hit it? I'd have to assume if the museum is asking for the car to be delivered to use the road course that also makes use of the oval, a portion of the oval that the track is back and functional. Uh, but yes, the reason they asked for the diff is so that it could be driven around the road course because that is the thing that is primarily used. Uh, JJ Gertler is back. So as a history lesson, please, when Karst, Karst, sure, or Kart, first went to race at Texas in 2001, the drivers complained of vertigo and other effects from the G-loading, and the race was called off. What changed that lets IndyCar race there now? Uh, were there changes to the track, slower cars, better barbecue? Um, <laughs> so let's keep in mind, dear Mr. Gertler, that if we're talking about IndyCar showing up for the Texas race here, the Texas twin event in May, they will be racing with what? 600-ish horsepower? High 500, 600 horsepower? We produce significant speed, but there's not outrageous power behind the cars doing it. And prior to the turbo formula, we had the spec Honda V8s that were making, what, 600-ish, 650? And so the difference here was the unholy speeds being carried into the corners in 2001 with these cart era uh, Renards and Lolas that were making 850, 900, <laughs> uh, right? This uh, Gil, Gil D. Ferran or some guy that I heard of, uh, didn't he do something like 241 plus miles an hour in qualifying at Fontana? Uh, yeah, so we're talking about the difference between taking off at the airport in whatever my favorite airline southwest in a 747 or 7 whatever 7 and it takes off and it pushes you back in your seat a little bit and you feel it and you go all right that's cool it's the difference between that and taking off in an f-35 jet going mach 1 million within <laughs> the first 10 seconds of acceleration that's the difference if we're talking about what it was like getting to the corners jj 
So the amount of speed being carried into the corner. So it was something, to my knowledge, the cars were incapable of carrying all the way through the corners. But getting there uh, wasn't the being thrown back in the cockpit speed. It was the, the minute you get into the banking and start turning left. And it is your internal organs in your brain and everything being pressed out the right side of your body lap after lap after lap so it's the getting there and turning in at speeds that just make everything inside you want to turn off and it's because of the power uh it's just simply because there was so much power and really good downforce too but it was the power and downforce where you go yep we have found the limit of what the human body can tolerate. Uh, So, you know, if they were to come back with detuned motors, of course they could have put on a race. Is that something they were going to do right away? Not really something you can do. And I know that might sound strange, like, well, hey, don't, don't turn down the revs, turn down the boost. Well, these motors are dynoed and mapped to operate in the exact window of performance as delivered to go race. You can, of course, dial things back a little bit without the motor kind of operating outside of its intended specification. But to really do what they wanted, yeah, uh, these motors collectively would have had to have gone back, been rebuilt, had a a lot of different parts thrown in to bring that number down to whatever it might have been, 650, 675, I don't know. But then at that point, you're also running more or less IRL speeds, And why do that if there's no real difference for you at the track that opened itself in terms of open wheel cars with the IRL in 97, eh, why show up and kind of do the same speeds? Um, So I get why there was no real effort to try and come back and do it again. Let's see where we're going to go next. Otto Kinzel, second time for this question. Marshall, can you offer any insight to what Eddie Cheever was like as an owner? Because when he was a dedicated owner driver, he had success. But as soon as he landed Red Bull as a sponsor and expanded to a two-car team, everything seemed to drop off. All the drivers he had, Thomas Schechter, Buddy Rice, Alex Barron, Ed Carpenter, Patrick Carpentier, are the one races before or after being with Cheever. But Eddie only had one win with the team. Says, hashtag me personally. I think the team way underperformed with a high-profile sponsor like Red Bull. And I've always wondered why when all the ingredients for them to be a front-running team seemed to be in place. I wish I could offer you some deep insights, Otto. Uh, This is a little bit of a inside-the-team blind spot for me because it fell in this mid-2000s period where I was trying to lead a little bit of a normal life, working a 9-to-5, still going to lots of races on the weekend, working in a variety of capacities for teams, but... This isn't something where I was around uh, Eddie's Red Bull-sponsored team to see what they were like on the inside and what may or may not have worked. I did see Eddie, you know, Rachel's potato chip era um, and how things went back then and, you know, had a, a pretty solid team for an IRL effort. Eddie had a reputation for just being a really hard bargain driver and i don't know if that had anything to do with their lack of success but i can tell you that just we're talking about 
reputation. I don't recall hearing from a lot of friends that they were really dying to go to work for the team. So not saying that there was anything wrong. I can only just tell you what I remember hearing. And it wasn't a program that seemed super destined for longevity. So it's a great question, though. Uh, Maybe next chance I get to speak with Eddie or some of the uh, some of the others love to ask. So wish I had more for you right now, Otto. But if and when I do, I will do my best to throw this back in. Uh, Oscar C. Love. Hey, Oscar. Is this two weeks in a row? What the heck, man? I tell you. Thank you, brother, for sending this in. Says he's going to his first Indy 500, hopefully. Uh, What is the one non-obvious thing I should do or see before leaving? I think you had one or two people mention driving out to see something on dirt, sprint, you name it. I mean, I would recommend that for sure. This is one of, maybe this isn't a non-obvious thing. A lot of folks go to the IMS Museum and, you know, spend some time, take some photos, poke around a little bit. I always find it deserves a lot more time than, for whatever reason, I'm able to commit. So I would suggest, if you have the time and interest, pick a day where, again, if you're just coming in, you know, Friday or whatever, I realize you don't have a lot of time or days to burn, but if you have a chance to be there during practice or something when there aren't a ton of people around compared to race weekend where it starts to get really busy or even qualifying weekend, spending some time in the museum and really looking and bring your camera, uh, for sure bring your camera and take a lot of photos and appreciate all the the cool it's the evolutionary chart of open wheel racing that they have on display there uh the failures the the pioneering ideas they have some different things for sure like hey there's a dragster why is there a dragster here i don't know but i'm gonna go look at it or there's an off-road thing or a lamar winner or whatever um that is something that i would say for sure i would do I have to admit that my time there is work or work. And so that's not a complaint. That's not anything. It's just when I've had the opportunity on rare occasion to get out and go to the such and such 100 race on a Friday night or a Saturday night and go see some dirt thrown around at something cool. I have loved it. And it's been so much fun. Granted, I could do that here locally in the Bay area. Uh, but that's a real tradition that I would say enjoy yourself with. Now, I might also suggest, knowing that you're a racing fan, the memorabilia show, the uh, the day before the race, Saturday morning, which starts uh, right behind the pagoda. Um, that's pretty amazing. You're not going to find many of those on the planet. So go and see that. A lot of nerds and idiots like me that are there. But that's something I would do for sure some interesting grave sites you could visit of course if we're talking about history uh, of the the speedway and some of those who were buried in and around indiana um beyond that man i gotta gotta admit uh i haven't had a chance to get out and see a lot do a lot beyond work or rare occasion to uh, go and do truly fun stuff 
tell you where a lot of the movie theaters are because you know whether it's uh me and Bourdais or whomever else will go find something to uh to kill some time um you know whichever night we might be able to do or have some dinner here or there but i guess the better question i would throw back is what are the things that you like to do what are the things when visiting a new town you like to look for to sample and see how they do a certain thing there um or if there are specific racing things that interest you, I could maybe point you towards a little bit of a, a sharper answer. Uh, so, yeah, fire back. Let me know, Oscar. Uh, our pal Hrishi Despond says, Hey, during quarantine, I've rediscovered old episodes of This Old House. My question for you, which five IndyCar drivers would you cast as the host, the general contractor, carpenter, plumber, and HVAC specialist, and landscaper in an IndyCar re- remake of This Old House? house now i had to and i apologize here Rishi, but i did have to google this because i know i've seen it uh many times i swear it was pbs and so i did find that yes indeed uh bob vila and some of the other great hosts there uh did indeed uh help make a lot of things and show us about uh tenons and mortons and joiners and joints and whateverers and all kinds of fun stuff that yeah uh, at least as a kid, PBS seemed like it was on a lot in our house. So I think that's why this old house is something that uh, stood out for sure. Also, no, there's a little thing. doesn't matter. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, though, but my father loved woodworking. It was among his favorite things, but he didn't get much of a chance to do it that often. But down below the garage... He set up a little woodworking shop and he made our kind of cutting block. It sat in the middle of our kitchen and it's where meals were prepared. It's where some of us came and stood around and just conversated, had conversations and such. He made that by hand. That was something that he had a lot of pride in. Made cutting boards, uh, smaller ones that you'd use. Made a lot of things there. Made a baseball bat for me when I was a kid. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, this is kind of a fun throwback here because uh, woodworking was important in the Pruitt household. Uh, good, but I think, and I apologize, my friend, this might be too obscure because unless you're old enough to have seen this and happen to listen to the show, I don't know, honestly, Rishi, if many people... Uh, have any clues to what we're talking about. So uh, I might pass on this one for now. Um, Maybe if uh, we get feedback that, yes, a lot of people know, uh, then maybe we'll plug in answers. Uh, Let's go to, all right, let me count how many. One, two, three, four, five, just five O's. Okay. Says, are the remaining seats favored to go to familiar faces such as Kimball, Fittipaldi, Piggott, Kellett, and Daly? Or do any outsiders stand a serious chance at a seat or two? Well, we know about the Dalton Kellett uh, being signed. Big hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Being signed full-time to partner with Sebastien Bourdais from Le Mans. So know about that. You asked this before that came out, though. So we know that's happening. Um, have heard Dalton is not just motivated, but have heard that there's been a pretty good you know they're trying to put some additional money behind things to make the team you know step up even more competitively so that's really awesome that makes me super happy 
Fittipaldi spoke with him yesterday, whatever it was. So story went up today. Keep hearing he's not done, but pretty close to being confirmed at coin. I do wonder if he might pop up somewhere else though, if things go sideways there, uh, Charlie, I think might be in for a Carlin return. Hopefully, uh, Connor, I've only heard about him going back to Ed Carpenter racing, not saying this is fact. Obviously there's been no press release or anything written about it to confirm, but have heard it might be a little bit more like what he just did road and street courses compared to the full-time thing he was hoping for, but it's not announced yet. So we will, uh, continue hoping and waiting, uh, that he does get that full-time seat. Best answer I can give you on are there others is if there are, we're going to look to Carlin and coin. I would love to tell you that I have a lock on both of coins drivers. I don't mention Fittipaldi is one, obviously, but a couple names that I've heard, but nothing to the point of like, okay, I'm going to write about it. And Carlin say that they're going to have their announcement about what they're doing here shortly. So we'll wait on that. Uh, have been very confident that Max Chilton will be back road and street courses in the 59 car. So, but could there be someone that surprises us potentially? I don't know of any that are really road to indie types where you go, Hey, we're wow. Okay, cool. Didn't know that you were, had the money to jump up and do IndyCar. I, if that were to happen, I'm totally blind to it right now. Uh, I think we might be talking more about uh, someone that's been on the European ladder towards F1 uh, that would end up doing something. So, yeah, Coin, Carlin, for whatever reason, the C's are uh, the ones leading that conversation. Getting down to the final batch of questions here, and we are going to kick those off with Daniel Ingleton. says, hey, Marshall, has either Penske or Andretti ever seriously tried to sign Scott Dixon? It's amazing his long services to the team, uh, but do you think he's ever been tempted elsewhere? Tempted's an interesting word, Daniel. I am aware that what we would call Aaron McLaren SP, uh, what, a year ago, year and a half ago, made a run at Scott, didn't work out pan out but i'm aware that that happened would he have spoken with other teams while in a contract year of which there are many i believe because i seem to recall dixie's a big fan of one-year contracts i'm quite positive that someone from an andretti or penske has reached out or dixie's representative the fine mr stefan johansson has fielded inquiries but would those be serious things? Yeah, we're going to run you and boot someone. Or, hey, we've got a big old vacancy and you're the guy. Or is it, hey, you know, trying to get a feel for the market uh, so you can set your number wherever the right place is to stay with the team? Say, hey, you know, uh, thank you for the offer, but I've got one that is 1.5 times better. Uh, with a rival. So if you can match that, then I'll stay. Uh, that's uh, the most common common thing, Daniel. I'm not saying he's done that. I'm just saying it would be strange if someone of his caliber with a veteran manager and deal maker like Johansson 
Um, yeah, I don't think they just sit there and hope they get a contract and just sign it, uh, no matter what the number is. They're pretty smart players. So I'm aware of McLaren have to assume there's been something with one, if not both of the others that you've mentioned. And will we get any confirmation about what truly happened before he retires? No, not a chance. Uh, Eater Flozada, Ola Marshall, sending this one in again. In your interview with Jimmy Johnson, he touched briefly on his additional plans for testing. He's already drove a Formula, Formula Regional Americas car. Um, if, you, if Johnson asked you for advice, which car would you pick for him to get used to downforce? Should he go to Europe, rent some older F1, GP2, F2, or Boss GP machinery? Or maybe enter a developmental championship like the Toyota Racing Series or MRF Challenge? Boy, what I would suggest is, hey, if you look at Chip Ganassi Racing's Wall of Champions, uh, all of the Indy cars placed on the big racks there, whether it's IRL, CART, you name it, there's a lot of amazing stuff in there. Now, you've got two questions that can be problematic. One is tires. So... Firestone tends not to say, yeah, we're going to send you 10 sets of our current tires to put on whatever cart champ car thing for you to go play with. I don't even think by rule or, or I should say contract they're allowed to do so. So that's pretty significant. Then you get into the motor side. If it's more of a Ford Cosworth type scenario, or you can bolt in a Ford Cosworth if there isn't one, um, I think you got I think you got something here. But as you will find a lot of the manufacturers whether it's Toyota, Honda, so on who made the motors back then not super keen on supporting them today. Um so if I'm looking at hey what would I do? I would find hell. <laughs> I would see if I could get my hands on a car that Ganassi never ran, which would be a 2007 Panos DP01 of which there are a number that are runners and ready to go. And there are a few tire manufacturers, uh, mostly who support vintage racing, but obviously support F1 cars, Indy cars, and similar that are doing vintage racing that could uh, indeed provide something. Is it going to be identical to a DW12 with 2018 bodywork and an aero screen? Of course not. But if we're talking about getting a feel for downforce and being able to make a ton of mistakes and have it happen free and clear of everyone with no limitation on how much testing you can do, this is a pretty big area to exploit. IndyCar's rules for how many test days using equipment and so on, and those are well known. It's very small. Not much that I know of, though, about the... uh, like we had with Lance Stroll when he was getting ready for F1. Father paying a lot of money to have him using a couple-year-old F1 car, doing basically private testing at a lot of places just to get him up to speed so that when he was ready for his rookie F1 season, he wasn't truly, truly uh, a rookie based on experience. I think, unless I'm wrong, that this is a pretty wide-open area in IndyCar. You just haven't had a lot of teams trying to come up with solutions or people with money and the budget to commission something like this. This is absolutely something I'd be doing with Jimmy. 
So can they, will they, is there the money? Is there the desire? I don't know. Uh, the formula regional Americas, it's great. You know, it's small training. It's, you're going to, there's a lot of basics that you're going to pick up there that will be super valuable. If it's not an Indy lights car, then I'd say you just have to get creative with an older uh, Indy car that makes prodigious downforce, has really good power and grip. Other thing too, which I keep thinking we're going to hear more about, is now that Ganassi is in the uh, DPI realm, racing an IMSA with a Cadillac. That seems like something where, boy, uh, we know that there are IMSA testing rules, but um, I'm curious how many miles Jimmy might log in something like that. And is it something where... 24 hours of Daytona. We know he's going to be with the Action Express team in the number 48 Cadillac there. So that's going to be more good experience. But what about a 12 hours of Sebring? Is there a seat in a Ganassi car? Can he do more with Action Express? It's all driven by budget. But if there's a budget there, truly, this guy just needs as much time as possible in a high downforce, high performance vehicle. The time that he spent in Daytona prototypes. Yeah, those weren't really downforce cars. Those weren't performance cars. So, yeah, that's my general thoughts. Our pal Jerry Siddhuth says, Hey, I read an article in Auto Week about the worst driver moves in recent IndyCar history. My question is, I read that, by the way, Jerry, and found some of it was interesting, but yeah. Uh, My question is the opposite. What do you believe are some of the best driver moves in recent IndyCar history? Great question. Well, if we talk most recent, that would be the two protagonists in the 2018 Indy Lights Championship, and that would be Pato Ward and Colton Herta. So Pato getting signed to Air McLaren SP, uh, Colton getting signed full-time to uh, Andretti, I would say if we're talking recent, those are giants. I mean, those are just giant moves that we expect to pay off for a long time. I mean, if we go back a little bit, right? Pretty cool situation, of course. If you think about where Ryan Hunter Ray was, I mean, his career had stalled pretty heavily, got that kind of sort of lifeline thrown to him by the Vision Racing Team, really, really delivered for them at St. Pete. Next thing you know, Andretti Autosport is saying, hey, uh, we think we can do something here. I would say Graham Rahal going to his father's team. That would certainly be a really smart move on his part. Uh, The relationship for a variety of reasons, which we've covered, I think ad nauseum on the podcast in the past, just the, the fit between himself and the Chip Ganassi Racing B team. Um was never never what either side truly wanted. So going back uh, or going to his father's team, I would say that has transformed his career. Uh, boy, if he could get back on that form shown three, four years ago, we'd be really talking about um, big and impressive time. I mean, where else? We go to some others that might be obvious. Uh, Joseph Newgarden. He was with Sarah Fisher, Wink Hartman, then Ed Carpenter. You know, he was, he, he put in his time. He really, what, five years was it? 
2012 through 2016, he put in his time. And Robin Miller talks about this a lot, about how he would ask Tim Sindrick time and time again in those first couple of years of Joseph with uh, the smaller team. Uh, hey, boy, this kid looks like he's got the goods. They weren't interested. They had no interest and didn't want a guy that they would have to develop. And guess what? I guess we could say they maybe waited uh, waited to the right point in time. Um, it's pretty awesome to see what has happened for him there. Uh, pretty happy to see what his career uh, has transformed into. And yeah, I would say that's that's pretty darn awesome. So those stand out in recent times. Um, got a story here in our episode 1000 from Danny Sullivan that I didn't know the full backstory. I hope you enjoy it. It might end up being the best answer to the question, Jerry, of best career moves in IndyCar history in the last 30 plus years. So yeah, uh, 30 years, 40 years, Jesus. I don't know. I'm getting old. Uh, so I hope you like that one, Jerry, that one's mind boggling. Uh, Henrik says, Hey Marshall, can we expect any updates to the live timing for next year's TV graphics? Uh, should be room for improvements. Uh, don't know Henrik. I mean, this is one of those things where without stating what's wrong, it's, you know, should be, there's always room for improvements, I guess, but, uh, what needs improving? So hard to say if they're going to make updates without really knowing or understanding the, things that are believed to be wrong to then ask about. I do know that Lee Diffie will be our guest tomorrow though. Uh, but I don't know if he would know about this. So might need a few more specifics here because not a lot I can really comment on without knowing what you see as needing improvement. Our friend, uh, Ross Porter, you are the penultimate plus one questionnaire MP. I'm not big on new year's resolutions. Same here. Uh, but I do wonder about the other RP, Mr. Penske, uh, and what items <clears throat> are at the top of the agenda for growth and improvement of IndyCar uh, in the coming year. Says hashtag me personally. I think getting back fans and getting them out to the racetrack in a larger capacity has to be at the top of the list. Uh, I believe now more than ever, people are itching to get out and enjoy the things they couldn't in 2020. What's your take? Oh, boy, Ross. I can't believe that anything other than what you have mentioned of getting fans back to tracks, fans buying tickets, fans being in grandstands, promoters, series, sponsors, you name it, all being whole, all being in a good financial way, all feeling like their bellies have been rubbed uh, and everything is right in the world. I mean, that's the key thing. Spoke about it, I believe, in the last Q&A. Uh, so I won't go back into it again here, but spoke about the fact that tracks cannot sustain another year without fans. Uh, even if we get back to a place where COVID's gone halfway through the year, those tracks in the first half of the year that might have run events without people, again, it's not even an option for them. So, yeah, with fans, we have not only the finances working with ticket sales and hot dog purchases and whatever else, but we also have sponsors with fans seeing and feeling positive about being here. If there's a good turnout uh, for those who have something to try and sell and promote on site, 
having people walking over to look at their thing and maybe buy it or ask about it or want to do a test drive in it, whatever. I mean, these are all the functional things that break down without people. And then the last part, and this is surprisingly big piece, Ross, of the business of IndyCar. It's the business-to-business stuff. It's the, hey, we've got a hospitality truck or suite, and we have multiple CEOs and CMOs and CFOs all together talking, and we're trying to make business happen, and we get a percentage of that or whatever. You know, these are all things that positively benefit the uh, the teams. Well, for the most part, that wasn't possible this year. Uh, there were some golden tickets, as they were called, uh, for, hey, you know, we've got passes for six people, a uh, non-race team. You can use those for sponsors, whatever, whatever. But still, uh, it's not like we're able to have the normal, here's the big party, uh, here's the big wine and dine in a suite, under a tent, wherever, and where we're going to do a lot of positive business together. So getting that back, Ross, uh, that's also going to be hugely influential on IndyCar for the years to come. Uh, Let's go to our pal Rob Ball. You are the second to last in the episode, our friend. Uh, You say, MP, any suggestions for an IndyCar-related gift for Christmas? Uh, Also, has Miss Pruitt ever bought you a racing-related gift for Christmas? And if so, what was it? Well, funny you should ask, Rob. I would say probably 90% of what Mrs. Pruitt buys for me for my birthday or Christmas, both which fall in the same month, uh, are racing related. Uh, (laughs) It's not uncommon for her to reach out to my friend Paul Zimmerman and say, hey, uh, what do you think this idiot might like? And then a box shows up and she says, don't open it, give it to me. I'm going to put it somewhere and hide it. And we do that. So, um, yes. Many, many, many things that are racing related because I'm simple like that. Uh, as for IndyCar related gifts, oh boy. I suck here, Rob, because uh, buying gifts and doing all that kind of stuff hasn't really been on my radar, hasn't really been a thing uh, we're able to do right now. So I have to admit, I'm really lame in this regard I th- well i'm lame in many regards you all know that but there hasn't been a, a list i would say that i've looked through we'll mention though that i think in the latest issue of racer magazine there's a pretty cool gift guide um got the latest issue of motor sport the british magazine uh you subscribe to it there's this i think the latest issue had a bunch of things in it that I was like, oh, I got to get this, got to read this. Um, that showed up recently, and I seem to recall there being some pretty amazing gift suggestions in that. Um, so I'd look in those two places. Item that I've seen or items that I've seen that I want that, again, they're, they're not attainable right now, but maybe they will be in the future. A uh, guy by the name of Ricardo Santos, who does it seems like one or two covers for us each year on racer magazine artist just beyond (laughs) beyond comprehension and he i don't know if there's any indycar stuff that he has but if you were to search in your good old googs or whatever 
Bing, if you want to do throwback search engine, uh, Ricardo Santos racing art. I've seen some of his ads pop up, I think on Instagram and a few other places and the prints that he has Rob, I want all of them and I want all of them like the size of the world because they're that amazing. So that's the one thing that jumps out that maybe answers your question. Final question goes to our pal right turn lever if there'd be a christmas indycar race where should it be held and who'd show up dressed as santa all right this should be held Anderstorp. we're going to sweden for this why i don't know but we just are uh who would dress up as santa saw someone might have been our pal stitch turner i don't know if he was talking about me or chip ganassi uh but saying that yeah uh might not be too far away from looking like santa i might be the one because my beard has gone more or less white gray whatever the color is and yet the hair on top of my head has not so i guess if you throw the little red beanie santa hat on me I'd kind of have a beard that works. I need to grow it out some more for sure. It, it was once an illustrious thing that looked like uh, I could put my keys and a wallet in there. Uh, it's no longer like that, but I think I'd be the one that shows up like Santa. It's a little bit on the nose, but hey, uh, that's okay. All right, y'all. This might be our only episode for the week. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to. The fact that I'm recording this on a Wednesday night and it's 8 36 p.m. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get to a part two, but, uh, nonetheless, thank you for everything you sent in. So happy to say that Cooper tires will be back next year and, uh, we'll have more on the, uh, the sponsor love justice brothers for sure. Toronto motorsports.com and bell racing helmets, USA, hugely thankful to them. Most of all, thank you to you all for giving this fun little family like platform an opportunity for me each week here talking about IndyCar and oh hey got a lot of stories that I'm going to file here shortly with an interview long interview I did with Jay Fry probably two weeks ago so those might pique your interest so keep an eye on racer.com and we'll be back to here shortly with our man Lee Diffie and episode 1000 isn't far away Mm -hmm.